Hey everyone, our reading today is from uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. So that was Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27, and that should be found on page 743 of your Pew Bibles. So Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your, your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take, him, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they replied, he already has ten He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together around your word and in your spirit. We thank you, Father God, that um, you've given us your word. We pray, Lord God, that it would be your word that would shape our lives, not the uh, society and the culture around us. And uh, help us now, Lord God, to be reshaped, to be remoulded, that uh, we would be people who are fit for your service. And we ask in Jesus' most precious name, Amen. Once a year, my superannuation company sends me out a thick paper report. I've resisted the email reports. Uh, In order to let me know how my super is going, and now many of us here I would expect would receive a similar sort of package in the mail each year. The uh, thickest part of the report is where they tell me about my portfolio. How about that? I have a portfolio of investments. Uh, They want to uh, tell me where it's all been invested, uh, in shares, local shares, international shares, uh, bank deposits on fixed term and longer term and all, 
real estate and, and so on. And, uh, you know, despite the fact I've got a degree in accountancy, all I really want to know is what's the bottom line here, folks. But they want to tell me what a great job that they've been doing, how they've been busy at work making my money make money for me. How about that? Now, the story which Jesus tells in Luke 18 is not a special message about finances, although I'm, I would not be surprised if there are some financial uh, advisors and superannuation consultants around the world that have claimed this parable for themselves. But it's not what it's about. It's about something which is far more valuable than any retirement fund, something which has been entrusted to us as the managers to manage, to invest it so that it'll grow. Now, before we dive into the parable, which is in Luke 19, let's just look at the context for a moment. Let's think, let's think about what was going on in the ministry of Jesus. You know, as we've worked through Luke's gospel, we've seen from chapter 9, verse 51 onwards, when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, we've seen a, uh, that he's been on that journey, that he's been very, not been meandering about, that Jesus has been uh, very deliberate in terms of heading towards Jerusalem. And along the way, he's uh, let his disciples and the crowds know a little bit about something that's going to happen in Jerusalem. Well, now, when we come to this section of the Gospel, he's, uh, he's in Jericho. Uh, we see that in verse 1 of chapter 19. And Jericho... You're getting pretty close. It's, Jericho is about 25 k's south of Jerusalem. And so here in our opening verse in verse 11, there is now a heightened sense of expectation. People thought that something big was going to happen, that Jesus would enter Jerusalem, that he would be crowned as king and or anointed as king, that uh, the Jews would be mobilised and the Romans would be ejected and uh, they would be sent packing. Uh, something like this did actually happen in the period in between the two testaments when the uh, uh, Jewish rebels were able to expel foreign occupiers. But uh, what they're thinking now is that uh, it's about to happen and before you know it, God's kingdom is going to be re-established. Uh, God's kingdom as it was in the days of David and Solomon and the kings that followed. Now, the issue, of course, is that that is not God's plan, that the physical kingdom is a prototype that actually uh, teaches us about the, uh, the, the, the spiritual kingdom, which is God's ultimate reality. And so... What Jesus needs to do here is to correct their thinking. And so, therefore, in verse 12, he tells a story. <clears throat> it's about a man. Um, he's uh, from a noble family, from an influential, this is a landed gentry establishment kind of family, who goes on a journey to a faraway land. Now, when you 
These days you can go on a far away to a, on a journey to a faraway land and it doesn't take much time. You know, you hop on a jet star plane, you're in Bali in eight hours and you know. But in those days, if you went to a faraway land, you're talking about a long journey. You're gonna be away for a long time. His reason was in order to have himself appointed as king. But before he goes, he summons ten of his servants. And he gives them each a sum of money. Uh, they all get the same amount. And they get given what's called a minor. It's a coin. It's not just any old coin. It's a valuable coin. In fact, the uh, average wage earner uh, would expect to get, um, in a whole year of work, they'd only pick up four of these coins as their remuneration. So it's about three months of work, one coin called a miner. Um, by the way, here's a fun fact. <clears throat> it's also, the same word is where we get the word mineral from and mine as well. So mining and so on, it all comes from this same word that's uh, used for this particular coin. It's a decent sum of money. And so in verse 13, whilst this Nobleman is away, the servants were to use the money to make money. And in the parable, there are three stages to this journey. Uh, first of all, the, the nobleman sets out to go away on his long journey. Secondly, as we've just said, his servants are to make his money work for him in his absence. But thirdly, one day he's going to return. And when he returns, uh, what's he going to return as? He's going to return as the king, as the ruler. Now, who do you think that Jesus is talking about, folks? Himself. He's talking about himself. In, in Jerusalem, <clears throat> Jesus would die for our sins and he would rise again. Uh, but then he would ascend to his father in heaven. He'd go on a journey. And one day, he would return. And when he returns, he returns as Jesus, the king. Now, there is something which is a bit strange about the parable. I mean, why would someone have to travel to another country to be anointed as king over their own country? Uh, well, the people who were listening to Jesus on that day, that to them made perfect sense because... Anyone who was a king in Judea, well, they're actually a puppet king, aren't they? Um, they're actually a puppet king of the Caesar in Rome. And so they would have to travel to Rome in order to be properly installed as king. Um, <clears throat> I always get the, the Herods confused in my mind. I don't know about you, but the Herod who was who was ruler when Jesus was born, that's Herod the Great, right? When he died, his kingdom was... He, uh, he willed his kingdom to be split up and uh, given out amongst his sons. One of his sons was designated to be the king of Judea, and that's Herod Archelaus. Now, Herod Archelaus... Well... He wasn't all that popular. The Jews hated him. Um, I mean, they were fed up with living under his 
the rule of his father to start with, but um, they also hated him in his own right, and with good reason. He was a tyrant. He was a uh, uh, he was a dreadful ruler. Uh, in fact, on, on one Passover, he massacred three thousand people, you know, for the sake of it. And so, when he went to Rome to get his uh, appointment as king, uh, the Jews sent a delegation to Rome to lobby against him being appointed, to go and talk to Caesar Augustus and say, we don't really want this guy as our king. Um, what would you call that kind of an action? I'd call it brave, wouldn't you? Because what happens if you fail in your mission? You have just made, for yourself, a very dangerous enemy, which is exactly what happened. And in the parable, we're told that, uh, uh, that there was a, a group of people, um, in verse 14, um, when this particular nobleman goes off on his journey, verse 14 it says, but his subjects hated him, and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And Jesus' hearers are thinking to themselves, we know exactly what you're talking about there. So he's connected with them in a very real contextual way. Now, of course, Jesus is the exact polar opposite to Herod Archelaus. Uh, he's no tyrant. Jesus is the perfect king. He is righteous, he is loving, he is everything that is, that is great. But what we have here in these rebels in verse 14, uh, there is a snapshot of our world because we live in a world where the vast majority of people reject Jesus as their king. They don't want him to rule over their lives. They want to live their lives their way without Jesus. And that's dangerous because in verse 27, when King Jesus returns, we're told that their future is very, very bleak. We don't want people to suffer judgment, but more about that in a moment. Now, in verses 15 to 19, when the king returns, what happens to his ten servants? Well, we don't know about seven of them, but we are told about three of them. Now, Imagine if you received your superannuation report in the mail, you opened it up and you looked at the bottom line and they said to you, we have increased, in the last 12 months, we have increased your investment by 1,000%. Be pretty good, wouldn't it? Well, that's what happens. The first servant's called in and he says to him, look, I've turned your one miner into 11 miners. I've increased it tenfold. Beautiful. Then the second servant comes and gives his financial report and he's able to report a 500% increase. He said, I've taken your one miner, I've turned it into six miner. I'd be happy with that as well, wouldn't you? Be very, very happy. But the issue here is not the profit. The issue here, this, is, this has been a recruitment exercise because the nobleman who became the king, 
wanted to know who he could entrust into the top positions when he formed government. That's what he was doing. Because the rationale is, is if, the, if there's someone who is faithful in a small responsibility, then chances are that they are a person who has the right ca character to be able to be entrusted with greater responsibilities. And by the way, that's also a good principle for church leadership or any Christian leadership. The best people to lead congregations are not necessarily the celebrities. The best people to lead congregations are those who have proven their commitment to the gospel, have proven that they are faithful in behind-the-scenes roles where there is no accolades. Uh, they've proven that they're faithful uh, in very small roles, humanly speaking. And when they've proven they're, they're faithful in small roles, then there's a good chance that they're going to be more faithful in the bigger roles. Um, <clears throat> so I, I remember at one point in time when I was thinking about um, ministry and uh, increasing my ministry, and I spoke to my minister I said, what would you like me to do? He didn't say, Scott, well, how about we put you on preaching next week? He said, no, there's a, there's a guy who's just become a Christian. He's a very shy kind of fellow, doesn't have many friends. Uh, he might appreciate if someone would go around to his place once a week and just read the Bible with him. Would you do that? There's a good lesson in that. Uh, to be faithful in those small responsibilities means that you actually potentially have the right character to be entrusted with bigger responsibilities. These first two servants have been faithful. But then Jesus tells us about a third servant in verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. So what about if you received your superannuation report in the mail and you ripped it open because you're excited to see how, how wealthy you've become and it said to you, we've made no money for you this year? Not because there's been a global financial crisis or the stock market's just crashed or you, know, you can't help those things, but they say, no, no, no. We took your money and we put it in the safe in our office and kept it for you. Well, what has this servant done with his one miner? Has he invested it? No. He's wrapped it up in a cloth. He's taken it out of circulation. It's not even in the economy. Is he sorry about this? No, he's not. In fact, he blames his master. Have a look at verse 21. In verse 21, he's tried to explain himself and he says to his master, uh, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. You try to make money by doing nothing. And the, uh, this is just an excuse, actually. He's, it's because he was lazy. As the master himself points out in verse 22, if, if that was his reason, if he really thought that, then why didn't he at least go and just put the money in the bank 
And that way, he could have earned some interest. Um, by the way, they didn't actually have banks in those days. <laughs> uh, you, you know what people did with their money, don't you? They, where did they store it? They, they put all of their coins into jars and then they dug a hole in their backyard and they covered the hole, they buried their money. Um, which sometimes they didn't tell anyone where the money was and they died. Sometimes there was an army that came through and killed everyone and the soldiers didn't know where the money was and, and that's why since the 1960s when metal detectors have become popular in Europe in the Middle East they've dug up countless of these hordes of very, very old coins. Now, so you, they didn't have a bank to send their money to but you could take your spare cash to a money lender who sat at a bench. Now, here's another fun fact. Because our word bank comes from an old English word, from an old French word, which means bench or table. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, and that's the, the, the Greek word that's used here is table. So... Uh, Literally, what the master has said to the servant is, why didn't you go and put my cash on the moneylender's table? Why didn't you go and put my cash on deposit? So in verse 21, for this servant, it's a fail. And even the small responsibility that he did have is now going to be taken away from him. Now, what does all of this mean for us? If Jesus is the king then what does the miner represent? That is, what is the valuable possession that Jesus has left us with whilst he's gone away on his journey? Now, on the one hand, we might like to think that it's the, um, the talents and the opportunities that God has given to us. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. But at its core... The truly valuable thing which God has given to us is the gospel itself. The great message about King Jesus, the great message about forgiveness, about changed lives, about eternal life. And we can't really drive a wedge. We can't separate the gospel from the opportunities and, and the talents that God gives us. It's part of the package deal. But at its core, the great treasure is the gospel itself. In Matthew chapter 28... Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he is about to leave his disciples. He's about to go away on his long journey to his Father in heaven where he'll be crowned as king. And in Matthew 28, as he's, he's parting words, what does he say to his disciples? What is the command that he gives? Well, he didn't command his disciples and say to them, look, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem I want you to kind of wrap that gospel message up in a, in, a, in, a, in a cloth and store it away. No, they were to take the gospel and they were to invest the gospel. They were to invest the gospel in growing God's kingdom, going out into all of the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to trust and to obey King Jesus. In other words multiply themselves, make more and more disciples.
It's a bit like the, um, the parable of the, the, the sower, isn't it? That the seed that falls in, the, in that uh, soft, nutritious soil produces a great crop. Uh, a Christian friend uh, was sharing with me just a couple of days ago about his struggle with self-doubt. Do you ever struggle with self-doubt? You doubtful about that? Uh, he was telling me about his struggle with self-doubt, particularly in ministry. And uh, although I, I'd have to say he's a very, very gifted guy, but he says, no, I, I just struggle. I, I don't feel adequate to do things. Now, my guess is that many of us feel inadequate to be used by God, don't we? Um, and perhaps that's fueled to some extent by the church culture, which, where we tend to celebrate people with um, the uh, more upfront gifts the, and so on. It's right to give thanks to God for those people, but sometimes we can celebrate it a little bit too much and put them up on too much of a pedestal and everyone else feels a bit inadequate. But in the parable... On what basis did the master commend the first two servants? What did he, why did he say that he was really pleased about? Uh, did he commend them because of their brilliant business acumen? Did he commend them because of their skills, because of their entrepreneurial... No. They were commended for what reason? They were commended because they were trustworthy. And the Greek word there can be translated as... Faithful. They were commended for their faithfulness. Now, we can all be faithful, can't we? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes a point which I personally find just very, very encouraging and helpful. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul says that the gospel is a great treasure which is carried around in jars of clay. Jars of clay. And that's us. That's us because we are not particularly special. We're weak and we are common. But it's not the jar that counts, is it? It's what's inside. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. It's the gospel which is powerful. It's the gospel which is special. The gospel, the life-changing message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week, some friends visited us in our home, different friends. Uh, Lynette was a a non-Christian who grew up in a really, really tiny country town of less than 200 people out west. Like any tiny, tiny little Australian country town out west, it had about six pubs in it. Um, no, I, think, I don't know how many pubs were in this town, but there was at least one pub because Lynette's best friend was the wife of the local publican, the lady that served the beer across the counter. There was a, a new school teacher who arrived in town who was a Christian. And one day she was walking past the pub when she dropped her bundle. Uh, and uh, 
the, the publican's wife came out to help her to pick it all up and put it back in a bag. And when she did so, she noticed that inside that there were some Bible materials. And when the publican's wife saw the Bible materials, she was angry and uh, she essentially said to her, what are you teaching our kids at this school? Now, it wasn't just the materials that spilled out that day because this clay jar Christian school teacher couldn't resist to show her what it was that she carried within her. And so over time, she shared the great treasure with the publican's wife and the publican's wife eventually believed in Jesus, put her trust in Christ Jesus, accepting him as her Lord and Saviour. Our friend uh, Lynette, not a Christian, she just kept on going to the pub where this clay jar Christian publican's wife just couldn't exactly keep the treasure to herself either, could she? And Lynette was served up <coughs> the most valuable commodity <coughs> that has ever come across a bar in an Australian country pub or anywhere, actually, as <coughs> she herself was uh, shared the gospel by the publican's wife. And since then, Lynette herself has spent her life now investing God's gift of the gospel uh, with everyone else that she comes into contact with in order to grow his kingdom. So you get the picture there, don't you? Ordinary teacher. Ordinary small-town Australian country publican's wife and an ordinary country town girl Clay jars, but faithful. Faithful with what God has entrusted to them. See, brothers and sisters, no matter who we are, we can all be faithful investors of the gospel. And for some of us, of course, that's going to involve upfront teaching um, in church ministries or in school scripture classes. Uh, and so on. For most of us, it's going to mean um, being ourselves uh, and praying for God to open up opportunities <clears throat> for us to say a word to, about Jesus to our friends or to our neighbours or to anyone who happens to help us pick up our books when we drop them outside the pub. I'm sure that Christian teacher probably had those materials there thinking, it's the kids that are going to get to know Jesus. She may not have even thought about the publican's wife. But God has his plans. We, might, we, we all can be people who pray and pray regularly, pray every day that God would use us to multiply his kingdom. We can all be people who think about someone and pray about someone to invite to a gospel event. Uh, why not start praying even now? for the carols night in December. Last week, Steve shared with us about the opportunity that we've got to help uh, to feed students uh, during the exam time at the university campus in the hope that God might actually open up an opportunity for a discussion about the gospel 
at least to show the love of Christ. Why not talk to Steve about that? Whatever the case, we must not live as if King Jesus will not return. Either by wrapping the gospel up in a cloth and storing it away only to bring it out every Sunday morning, or even worse, to be someone who does not trust Jesus, who does not want him to be the king over their lives. For in verse 27, as I mentioned earlier, the future for such people is bleak. In Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, those who do not know the gospel, do not, uh, do not, not know God and do not obey the gospel, will be punished with everlasting destruction. That's a promise from God. So if you haven't turned your life over to Jesus, now is the time to do that. And it's the very reason why we want to tell people about the salvation that Jesus has won for us on the cross. Because when Jesus returns, he does so both as king and judge. Um, my superannuation company has what they call life stage portfolios. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, as you, you transition. And I, I've actually transitioned into the last stage. <laughs> I've transitioned into that life stage portfolio where they will now only put my money into conservative, low-return, low-risk investments because they say if we put all your money into the stock exchange Scott and the stock exchange crashes you don't have enough working years left in you to make up for your losses <laughs> friends let's not be like that with the gospel let's be bold let's take risks under God let's be faithful let's keep on pressing on praying for opportunities, making use of opportunities as we wait for the return of the King. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to pray that you would open up opportunities for us to share with others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to be comfortable Christians who just want to be saved and that's it. Help us, Lord God, to understand what a great treasure it is we have and to be willing to share it, to invest it. Use us, we pray, clay pots to grow your kingdom. And Father, we pray for any of us here who have not put our trust in the Lord Jesus. May we see the seriousness and the importance and the unsustainability of that position. Oh, Father, we pray that many, many more people would be added to your kingdom, that the gospel would keep on being invested, would keep on growing, that you would be honoured and glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.